The backdrop and the events of the global COVID-19 pandemic have underscored in no uncertain terms just how fragile our economic and political systems are. In his most recent book, our guest for this episode argues that the past two years should serve as a wake-up call for us to realize how the concept and the practice of citizenship is teetering perilously close to the abyss of decay and destruction. However, there's still time to rebuild what we're in danger of losing. But in order to do that, we're going to have to rediscover a sense of the transcendent. And for this endeavor, the contributions by people of faith will be vital to success. In this installment of Crown and Crozier, we hear from Victor Davis Hanson, author of The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. Dr. Hansen serves as a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and as professor at the California State University in Fresno. He's also a nationally syndicated columnist. My name is Patrick Brown. I'm your host. Hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast on church, state, and faithful citizenship. There are two swords. And the question is, which sword is superior, the spiritual sword or the temporal sword? And without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. I die His Majesty's good servant, at God's first. Joining us for this episode of Crown and Crozier is Victor Davis Hansen. Dr. Hansen, thanks so much for being here on the show with us. Thank you for having me. We're here to chat about your new book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. Just for the benefit of our listeners, I'm going to give a quick summation of the the half a dozen forces and factors that you argue are gravely eroding the concept and the practice of citizenship in our times. The first one being the evisceration of the middle class, two, open borders, three, identity politics, four, the administrative state, five, progressive political evolutionaries, and six, globalists and globalization. And in your book, you argue that over the past two years in particular, these forces, which arguably have been kicking around for many, many years, have ripped off a veneer of complacency and revealed that what we've come to understand as citizenship is in fact teetering on the abyss. So to start, could you take a few minutes and expand on why the events of 2020 and 2021 in particular should serve as a wake-up call for us when it comes to the unique and dangerous confluence of these different forces. Yes, I had written the first draft in right before the COVID outbreak, and then I rewrote it during the COVID terrible year of 2020. And what happened, I think, the way to look at it, we had these pre-existing pathologies, but the combination of the pandemic, which we've never had quite like this, the national lockdown, the self-induced recession, George Floyd's death, the whole woke BLM, Antifa rioting and looting, and changes in the idea of criminality itself, and then the 102 million ballots, 65% of the people of the United States did not vote on election day. All of that, and then the controversy surrounding Trump, all of that was too much for the system. And so what happened, there were things that were pushed through by a radical left since January 21st that under normal circumstances, I don't think would happen. And by that, I mean the trivial saying that the word black has to be capitalized or people's pronouns now are of all different varieties and or we're going to hire 
thousands of diversity, equity, and inclusion administrators and the left-wing faculties who used to be strident in their opposition to administrative bloat would be quiet, or we'd have district attorneys who basically feel that crime is a construct of the wealthy and that people who commit crime are really crying out for from the heart for justice. And so they're not they're not prosecuted if they're if they are prosecuted, they're let go. There's no bail in many cases, and there we have a crime wave that we've never seen. And then when you add the inflation, two million people scheduled to come across the border, eight hundred thousand non-citizens will vote in a New York election apparently, and we have the Afghanistan destruction of U.S. deterrence, inflations that rose last month at the highest rate in 42 years. So. The progressive project got an opening, that was what I'm trying to say, and it pushed these agendas. We know them in the concrete, but in the abstract, they are the agendas that I was talking about in the book, that a disinterest, I should say, a lack of interest in the middle class and re-emphasis on the color of our skin, not the content of our character, tribalism, and then, of course, open borders, really open borders. And then this administrative state, we've seen the careers of Anthony Fauci, General Milley, uh, James Clapper, James Comey, John Brennan. They all have things in common. They're not subject to audit or censor, and they, uh, they exercise a lot of power that's not been given to them by elected officials or they're not elected themselves. And then finally, uh, we're trying to change the system because it didn't work for the left. So there's talk of packing the court after 150 years of a nine-person court. Get rid of the electoral college, get rid of the filibuster, get rid of the idea of 50 states, get rid of the state's prerogative under the Constitution to be in charge, for the most part, in national elections. And then we have a lot of bicultural elites who feel their first allegiances, cultural, political, economic, or to the world, they're citizens of the world, cosmopolitans. Not they're they're more worried about how they are viewed in Europe than how they are viewed in Youngstown, Ohio. Right. That's all excellent context. And for our discussion today, I'm I'm hoping we can do a deep dive on one of these forces in particular, identity politics or tribalism, as yeah. you call it. I'll be honest; it was intriguing reading your book. I had been anticipating that the topic of religion might feature a little more prominently in the chapter on tribalism. That chapter touched primarily on matters of race, ethnicity, culture, and language, which certainly are all important. But returning to the topic of religion, given the interests of our audience, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. You know, where does religion rank in the the pyramid of tribalist tendencies and and tribalism? And and do you see it as a form of tribalism? Well, it was assumed that that wasn't such an issue because we were founded by Christian Protestants. And then that idea of Christianity through immigration was expanded to Catholicism. And here in the United States, by the end of the 19th century, we, pr- we pretty much had been ecumenical with the vast majority of people being Protestant or Catholic, but especially Christian. There were very few agnostics or atheists or Muslims or Buddhists, etc. But after, because of our wealth and influence and because of immigration, we never, in our constitution, we never said that being a Christian nation meant mandatorily so. It was just a reflection of an empirical reality. But now, because of changing demography and, as I said earlier, an evolutionary idea that we're sort of going to be utopian, we don't need God or transcendence. I'd say now that Christianity only 
would reflect about 60% of the country. The other 40%, I'd say 35% of them are atheists or agnostics, and then maybe 10% are Muslims or Buddhists or some other religion. I don't see that Christianity is, is uh, starting any tribalism in the sense of uh, people keep saying that are not Christians that, that it's intolerant, but I don't see Christians saying that you can't do this and you can't do that. Mostly it's let me bake my cake and be, leave alone. I don't need to, to, I just don't, I don't dislike homosexuals. I just want to bake a cake. I don't want you, I don't come into your gay uh, bakery and say, I want you to write God is great and I want Jesus Christ as a savior. We don't do that. So, so that's the issue today. Christianity is on the defense. And we'll see if Christianity can survive in a very sophisticated, affluent and leisured society where people feel that they've created their own heaven on earth and they don't worry about the next world. They want to enjoy to the fullest and the longest, apparently, this, this world here. Yeah, and just getting back to one of the figures you were just rhyming off around what's arguably a rise in the segment of the population which claims no religious affiliation. This is sometimes referred to as the, the phenomenon of the nuns. So yeah. there's, there's no re religious affiliation there. And I, I was reminded, or I'm reminded of, among other things, the famous quote from John Adams in 1798. He said that our constitution was made only for moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And there are echoes of that in some of de Tocqueville's observations and writings on America where, I mean, he was struck by the role of religion and the religiosity of Americans when he made his tour. So I'm curious how that factors into your overall thesis. And would you, would you see as a threat to citizenship and the civic fabric if these numbers of the nuns continues to rise? And, and, and how do you think that would contribute to the dynamic of this confluence of forces which you look at in the book? Well, a lot of the challenges I talked about, especially in the epilogue, rising crime, rising violence, politically motivated looting and arson, uh, lack of civic identity, all of these reflect a common, I think, a religious theme in the sense that from the very beginning of constitutional government in Greece and Rome, whether it was Aristotle or whether it was Plato or whether it was Cicero or whether it was later philosophers who look back at them like Tocqueville or Machiavelli, they all believe that the problem with democracy and constitutional government was when you combine personal freedom and the protection of private property and free market capital, you create wealth and leisure. You can see it in the, in the nihilist tradition of Suetonius or Petronius or Tacitus. You create a population that is empowered and it has no checks, no legal checks on its expression or its behavior. You let it all hang out, you know, drop out, tune in etc. of the 60s. And so all of these philosophers felt that religion, even if they were, did not believe in the sanctity of God or the divinity of Jesus Christ, or, they did believe as deists that religion was a break on the appetites that were otherwise legally expressed. Without religion, then people would do things that they were legally entitled to do, but would be unwise for the general health. That was the first pillar, that's in Tocqueville. The second, I think, is very important, and that is that one of the pillars of constitutional government was that there was going to be some kind of transcendence, that this was a city on the hill, but we were, we were investing for future generations. And you can make the argument that it came out of the Greek idea of property, 
Tamon, that people planted olive trees and vines that they knew they would never see the full fruition, but they wanted their children to have them. They wanted it to live on. They wanted them to have some sense of the land. So the idea was we're going to protect property, individual rights, inheritance. But it was more than just materialism. And Greeks were very religious people. So they wanted a culture that was tied with that to endure. And there was a sense in that the government or the political system as brilliantly as it had been crafted by the founders, it was not going to, and I think getting now to your point, it was not going to be enough to keep the majority of people from taking advantage of it if they didn't have a moral compass and some fear fear that their conduct on the in the material world would govern the future of their soul in the non-material world that's pretty much throughout founding literature that surrounds the constitution of the declaration and you make that point i think in the introduction to the book where you talk about how affluence and leisure can be just as dangerous to citizenship as these other forces that you're talking about, if, if not more dangerous. And one pauses and reflects on the billions of dollars that we spend every year on, on entertainment and, and leisure and, and distraction. We seem like a very distracted, very ap- apathetic population. In your book, I mean, you, you certainly you diagnose and identify the threats to citizenship, the forces that are eroding it. There's a little bit more of an open door around a program for restoration and, and renovating citizenship. On that point, what role do you see for religion and faith in terms of maintaining a healthy civic identity and civic fabric and maintaining the concept and the practice of citizenship? The left especially says, you know, there's fewer democracies than there were 20 years ago, and we have to have democracy and we do a lot. And that's true, but we have to ask, what is it for? What's Mm -hmm. the purpose of it? The purpose of it is for people to have their private lives protected from government, to be able to worship, to be able to think what they want. And out of that freedom, then there are people who wish to be that way. And I think it's desirable. The founders thought it would be the more people, the more desirable. They would have a sense of transcendence, that they would govern their lives in a free society according to religious principles. They wouldn't be intolerant. They wouldn't say that you have to follow my religious principles. They were very worried about the religious wars in Europe that had almost ruined the continent. But they were trying to say to everybody, and Tocqueville really knew this, that you guys have created a very dangerous system because you've entrusted the individual to be the governor of his future. And the individual then has to be prepped for that in two ways. Civic education, so they understand the the levers and power of government that they created. And they have to be moral people in the sense that they don't abuse the system for their own ego or selfish material advancement or oppression or tribal superstitions. And they they can only do that through religion. The founders, they didn't have a national religion, but that was assumed that when you say freedom of worship, that was what the idea was. And even the founders, I don't think George Washington, the last years of his life, went into a church to worship. But he would consider himself a very religious person in two senses. I think he believed in the divinity of Christ, and at that period there was a movement that you could find and worship Christ and have him govern your own behavior of your life in this world without necessarily, they believe, going to a formal congregation. But more importantly, as DSA felt that collectively it was of advantage to everybody. The more people that believed that, the better the system would work. I think they were right about that. So we don't, we don't use that. We don't, you know, when we see people looting Louis Vuitton bags, we never say in a religious sense, 
That's not bread. That's not milk you're doing. Why are you doing that? Why are you looting this? You have $200 sneakers on. What is the value system? And what is the value system of our society that allows people to do that or wants so, that allows, that makes so many people or encourages them to do that? So all of these questions that we're having, there is not a religious component to it. And there always had been in the past. I'm curious, what would you say to the, the citizen who's aspiring to be faithful to their religion and aspiring to be dutiful in the, in the fulfillment of their civic obligations, and, and at this moment in time, is just feeling a bit ambivalent about things? If a citizen, uh, a Christian citizen uh, of the United States is, is looking at the way different levels of government, uh, particularly the federal government, is pulling certain levers, you can get a sense here and there that there are elements of the federal government, potentially including the leadership, that are either unfriendly or hostile to people of faith. People of faith can feel like on, they're on the defensive as it relates to protection of their conscious rights, for example. And a bit of ambivalence can kick in in terms of, if, if this is what I'm on the receiving end from my government, I'm going to be limited in what I can do, but you, you know what, I, I really got to take my religious obligations seriously. There can almost be this, this sense of ambivalence and, and almost letting go of the practice, yeah. of, the practice of, of civic duty and, and, and exercising uh, the rights and responsibilities of the citizen and just concentrating on your obligations to God. In times of stress, there had been that existential question than there was in the early church when that was behind the whole monastic movement in terms of political turmoil and dangers and what Jerome or Augustine said about what was happening or in Byzantium. So I think Christians are always faced with that choice when the state turns hostile toward them or the popular culture either is indifferent to them in the sense that they have no influence or power or is even hostile and wants to destroy them, then they can do one of two things. They can retreat to the, I would call it now, the monastery of the mind, but I I know that people who are leaving California are far more religious than the people who are staying, because they'll talk about crime in a religious or the lack of education in a religious sense. Or I talk to people who are religious, and it's a monastery of the mind. They'll say, I haven't watched uh, a Hollywood movie in years. I won't watch them. I don't turn on the NBA. I don't like that, that lack of sportsmanship. Uh, I don't like the cruelty that's displayed with people. I don't like the profanity. Or they will say, I don't really go to certain cities. I don't go to New York City. I don't, I don't want my children in a public school. So they've dropped out as it is. And then there's the other choice, and I think the minority are doing that now, unfortunately, and that is I have no, I have no apologies to make for my religion. In fact, I'm going to be proactive. And they fight for religious freedom and tolerance. And I guess... They have to go do a little bit more than that. They try to make the argument that without a sense of Christian transcendence, you can't have any moral basis of natural law or anything. And so those people, and I think they're the minority, are necessary because the, the materialistic, atheistic left and center want people to drop out. And they want them to go to Montana or Wyoming or Utah or go back to the land and be farmers, or drop out of the board of Stanford University if you were on it, or just pull up stakes and say, this is mammon and I don't want anything to do with it. But I think it's much more difficult to find people who can continue their faith as lawyers or activists or politicians or voters who take that responsibility 
seriously to check the power of the atheistic and agnostic attack on religion. It seemed like if you were an outsider looking at it, you would say that the great pushback came in the 70s and 80s and 90s with the evangelical movement and sort of a more muscular Catholicism. And now I think, I don't know whether it's high tech or the internet or globalism or whatever it is, or the rise of the hard left, it seems to be in the wane, that religious pushback. People are on the defensive. They don't want to say anything about, they don't want to get too vocal about the religious aspects of abortion, or they don't want to talk about maybe there are God-created two genders, and there may be some biological ambiguity here and there in rare cases, but the idea that he created multiple genders is contrary to the idea of creation. So, but people don't want to talk in that aspect. So being religious has been castigated as being ignorant or superstitious. It always was, but it seems that battle has been lost. I think part of the reason is so many people have divorced themselves from the popular culture and politics and just said, leave me alone. We all have that temptation. So, I mean, I'm speaking out on a farm in the middle of nowhere. I don't live in Palo Alto where I work. So I'm guilty as the next person, but I think it's important not to be a, a monastic. Yeah, I think just just with our our last question here, what's your hope for someone who reads your book, who's a a citizen who takes his responsibility seriously, a person of faith? They read your book. It's a very comprehensive diagnosis of the problems at hand. They close the last page and they say, all right, I'm bought in. I'm convinced I'm ready to do something. What next? Yeah, I think they have to be outspoken in in their defense of citizenship so they can say, I'm a member of the middle class, I'm very proud of it, and the middle class is being threatened, both by the tech oligarchs and the subsidized poor, and be honest about it. You cannot have a nation without, just say, I wish people would just say, we cannot have a nation, you never have had one without borders. You need a, a protected space for customs and traditions to be inculcated and preserved. And it is never, no multiracial democracy in the world has ever been attempted that worked with tribalism. Brazil's not working, India's not working, Yugoslavia didn't work post-Tito Yugoslavia. So this is a very fragile idea, and it won't work if we say that our race is essential rather than incidental to who we are. And then going into the theme of the book very quickly, if you've got two million people in the federal government that have judge, jury, and executioner power consolidated, and there's no audit, then you're going to get somebody like Anthony Fauci, or you're going to get somebody like Mark Milley, you're going to get somebody like James Comey or Andrew McCabe. So you've got to be active and say, if somebody breaks the rules, chairman of the Joint Chief interrupts a chain of command, he should be fired. If the FBI director or the CIA director does not tell the truth, he should be held liable and be active about that. I think we have to be much more traditionalist and say, you know, there was a reason we have a 150-year nine-person court or a 180-year filibuster. We're not going to destroy traditions. And if we have statues that offend people and as constitutional society, you want to vote under clear auspices of democracy, I can't stop that. But I would urge you strongly to say that you want the good and the bad. So if you got Robert E. Lee's statue and it offends a lot of people because he was a supporter, although a sophisticated, nuanced one of slavery, then why not have somebody right next to him that has the other view and let people see the tension that made this country bad and good. And then finally, you know, I think we've been sold a bill of goods, especially when it pertains to China and Europe. We've been told that China is sort of a model of efficiency 
and you've got skyscrapers that are clean and then high-speed rail and solar and wind and it's actually a an atheistic demonic country and it's going to threaten everybody and so we've got to be able to wake up about china and then with europe that's the opposite danger and that shows you what happens to a society that becomes socialist materialistic atheistic and uh kind of has a enemy that just sort of tired and it doesn't really it's kind of flabby it doesn't believe anything other than the satisfaction of the appetites so that's what Europeans are always their material so all they talk about is this person gets this and this person gets this and this person gets this and I'm waiting for this opening and the bureaucracy to get a job and I want this and yet it's it's so it's very dangerous those two extremes and they're and they're very valuable guides that we don't want to end up like either one of them so we've got to be out more outspoken and I think one of the tragedies of Donald Trump was he did a lot of things but he was outspoken in a way that alienated people but perhaps that was because not enough people who could be outspoken in a more sophisticated and targeted and focused fashion spoke out. And they left that void and people filled it. But we need people that are articulate and have some sense of history to speak out. There's no, there's no rule that the United States will continue as it is or that Christianity will continue like it is. History suggests that it can go back into the shadows just as easily it came out. And I can see that happening, especially in terms of religion in the near future, that it will be sort of considered, it'll be called a cult, and churches will be empty, and people who uh, join them will be called, you know, climate denialists or transphobes or racialists or protectionists or xenophobes. And there will be a vocabulary that will make it impossible for a person to worship in safety and, and transparency. Your last remarks there remind me of the famous statement from uh, then Joseph Ratzinger, the future Pope Benedict, uh, yeah. who, who mused in the 60s and 70s about the church undergoing a time of passion and becoming smaller, but stronger as a remnant. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there for today. We've been chatting with Dr. Victor Davis Hanson about his hot off the press book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. Dr. Hanson, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts and help us to reach more listeners by leaving us a rating or referring us to a friend. If you'd like to partner with us in the delivery of this podcast, head on over to our website at crownandcrozier.com and click the heart button in the top right-hand corner to learn more about making a one-time or monthly donation. We're sincerely grateful for you listening in and we look forward to providing you with future episodes on church, state, and faithful citizenship. Until then, God bless.